Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Monk, and I have the absolute privilege uh, to not only teach this morning uh, from the scriptures, but I get to serve on staff here as our high school uh, youth pastor. I've been here uh, just a couple years, and so super excited to be with you this morning. Uh, as we look forward to our summer, just want to acknowledge uh, Jesse Taylor, one of our interns uh, for this summer. He was just singing right up here, so super excited to have him and Ann Lewis, and they just started, and so we are getting all geared up uh, for the summer. So before we go any further and looking at the scriptures, do you want to recognize that as we head into this uh, Memorial Day weekend, especially as we look at tomorrow, it's good to remember that this is not just a, a long weekend where we get to enjoy time with friends or family or a, a cookout, uh, but this is a time to remember those that are, that are grieving. Uh, they're grieving the loss of a loved one who, in service to our, in our military, laid their life down uh, for our freedom. So just want to recognize that. Don't know um, who's in the room or who this is kind of hitting home with, and this is a harder weekend, but just want to pause for a moment and, and pray. Father, we praise you that what we know to be true in your word, that you are the God of all comfort. And so... As we turn to you, remembering those who are grieving this weekend, not just this weekend, but a grieving that may never go away, as they grieve the loss of a family member who laid, that, laid down their life for our country, I want to ask that you would comfort them in this moment, whether they're watching online or here in this room. Ask that you would use us as a body to bring people to mind of how we might comfort them, that they would experience the presence of Christ in and through us, that our words would encourage them, that they would experience the peace that surpasses all understanding, um, sorrow, in the midst of sorrow, they would experience a joy that can only be found in you. So we give this to you and we do praise you for who you are, that you are the God of all comfort. Pray this in your name, amen. Well, my, uh, my time here at CFC began 10 or 11 years ago. I was an intern, some of you may know this, for the great Bill Winton. He's, he's a legend around here. Interned for him for, for two summers. And, but before that, uh, again, 10 or 11 years ago, I, I started watching CFC services online from my dorm room in South Carolina. So I would... Uh, watch Doug's messages. He was, I think, preaching through 2 Corinthians at that time, and I would watch his messages, and then I would try to mimic him. And then I would go to Ben Lippin, uh, the private school, and I would teach to third graders, and I would try to teach just like Doug. So for me, that's how it all got started, just sitting there watching Doug in a dorm room. Never thought that I would, I would be here, but that's, for me, that's kind of where my journey began, just watching sermons online. And I share that because in the last year, especially with COVID, maybe that's your experience and that you started watching our services online and then finally you came in person and you're like, oh, this is, this is what it's like to, to be in person. So don't quite know who you are, but do uh, want to say we're, we're glad that you're here enjoying uh, in person. And if you are watching online, we're glad you're watching on, online. So let's now turn as we look into the series where Doug started last week. It's called Made Alive from Ephesians chapter two. The title of this message is Alive by Grace. And what I want to do, so if you have your Bible, 
You can grab it, turn to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 2. Doug started this series last week, looking at the first three verses. And as you see up here on the screen, we'll be looking at 4, 5, 6, and 7. And then Doug will pick it up with the verses 8, 9, and 10 the following, uh, the following week. So as we look at these few verses, kind of want to set it up with a question. And the question is this. Um, as I read these verses, and as you see them on the screen, let's count how many commands we see in these few verses. Here we go. So starting in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All right. So if we were like in a classroom, maybe get a few of you to talk back with me here. How many commands did you see in those few verses? Yeah, that's right. I see none, zero. There's no commands uh, in these few verses. And that's the whole point, that there's nothing really being asked of us to do in this passage. And if there's no commands, we then have to go, well, then what are these verses about? And if you look back down in your Bible, second word, verse four, it says God. So it's not what we have done, but what God has done. And there's a big uh, shift in this passage from what Doug taught on last week to where now we're going in verses four, five, six, and seven. So quick recap. Remember Doug taught verses one, two, and three from last Sunday. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now uh, working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we, all, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So you see there, there's a dramatic change happening between Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and then 4, 5, 6, and 7. And the word but makes that dramatic change evident. Anytime you see the word but in the Bible, that's, there's a contrast going on. Like I think about in the book of Genesis, in the story of Joseph, which Doug taught in the last year, where it says, Joseph says, talking about his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So you see the word but here, it's like, man, there's something very different from the verse, th first three verses to where we are this morning. And when Doug told me several months ago that he would be teaching through um, the letter of Ephesians, I got excited because this has always been one of my favorite books. And then when Doug told me that Ryan Toller and I would also be able to teach through parts of Ephesians, I got excited. I was like, man, I'm going to get a chance to teach Ephesians. And then about a month or so ago, when he told me that I was going to get a chance to teach Ephesians chapter two, the excitement got even more. I was like, Ephesians chapter two? I mean, any Bible teacher would love to teach this passage. I mean, maybe not these, these verses, but verses four, five, six, and seven, because this is classic to our Christianity. These verses are telling us this is what God has done for us. And so last week, I think, I think Doug had the hard part. Last week was the bad news. This week, I get the good news. I get the easy part. And I get to teach on the good news. And this good news is so good that it will make you sing. 
And, and, and so as you sit there this morning, we just look at these few verses slowly, just sit there and receive this, that this morning, there's nothing being asked of you to do only to praise him, because that's just the natural response when we look at what Christ has done for us in these few, these few, uh, few passages. Now, if um, maybe you're in this room or you're watching online and you're not yet a Christian, um, I think about, uh, there's a few verses in First Peter that talks about how we don't come alive apart from the living word of God. And all of us in this room who've come to faith in Christ have done so through the, this, this word that is alive, it's living and active. And so if you're not yet a Christian, you're actually in a great place because we believe that for the first time through the power of this word, you can come alive. All right, so we're glad you're here and praying that this word would speak to you in a special way. Now, for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, I want to just make a quick moment or a quick comment before we look back at these few verses, but I really think we need this passage this morning. And I think we need this passage because oftentimes we experience sorrow and in sorrow, it's easy to think that we have nothing to be thankful for, right? Or it's in sorrow, when things are hard, it's easy to think, man, there's just nothing really good going on in my life. But Ephesians 2 verses 4 and through the rest of the chapter lifts our eyes from our circumstances to the God who has done a lot for us, right? And in some ways, not in some ways, in a lot of ways, this passage gives us our awe of God back, even even in the midst of sorrow. So let's look back at these few verses. Now, knowing there's not a command to be done, but looking back to what God has done for us in his son. So here's the question now. As we look at Ephesians, these few verses, what has God done? I, I see four things. So with the person next to you, maybe you can, you can count them out loud. Here we go. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, all right, there's one right there. I'll, I'll give you that one, all right? Now, three more. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him. All right, there's two in this verse. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So how many did you see? Well, there's four. What are the four? Loved. What's that? Raised, and then before, what well, loved, alive, raised, and then seated. So here we are. What God has done for us, four things in this passage. He's loved us, he's made us alive, he's raised us up, and he has seated us with Christ. And so now, look at each of these, kind of unpack them one at a time. First, let's go through briefly here. He says that he has loved us. Well, he's loved us when? Well, look at, we just read it again for the third time. He's loved us, or he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. So loved us even when we were dead in our sin. And then next he says, Paul says, he's loved us, but then he's made us alive. In other words, when he says he's made us alive, he has given us new life. Paul doesn't say, um, I've improved your life. He, he, and he doesn't say, I'm making you alive as if it's a process, but he is saying, I've made you alive. I think Paul has in mind here a specific point in time where a person who was dead in their sin came alive by his grace. 
And you may not know exactly when that happened, but if it's happened for you, you know that it's happened because Doug mentioned this last week in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, that if you were, uh, the old has come and the new things has come, right? So change happens. When you believe, you become a, a new person, a different person. And it's hard sometimes to point exactly when that happened, but if it's happened, man, we know that it's happened. You know, I think about the story, um, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, like in the Gospel of John where um, Lazarus ha- had died and his sisters, Mary and, Martha, Mary and Martha, are running like, Jesus, come on, get here, get here. Our, our brother's about to die. And then he dies. And Jesus at the end of John chapter 11 is at the, the tomb and he's weeping. And then Lazarus um, had been dead for four days. Jesus speaks to him. And do you remember what he said? Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And a guy who had been dead came out. Like he was brought to life, physically speaking. And then we read just a few verses after that in John 12, they're sitting around and they're having supper. And we're not told exactly what those conversations were like, but can you imagine what questions were asked of Lazarus? Dude, what happened to you? Well, I, I was dead and, and now I'm alive. Seriously? Come on, man. What happened? Well, I, I was dead and Jesus spoke to me and there was power in, which he, in the words in which he spoke. And when he called my name, I came out of that grave. He rescued me. He brought me from death to life. Now, obviously, uh, physically speaking there, but when we as believers who've been made alive, when we read that passage, we recognize the spiritual reality that we were dead in our sin and he has made us alive. I know um, someone told me one time that one of the most miraculous things that we'll see is God's transforming power to change a human's heart. That there's power in the gospel as we see to be in Romans 1.16. That we were dead in our sin, we heard the gospel, and we, were, we came alive. I was sitting there in the second service about right here last weekend, and as Matt led us in these songs, I wrote these lyrics down. You called my name and I ran out of that grave. All praise will rise to Christ our King. Why? Because the resurrected King has resurrected me. And we recognize this truth right here. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, um, like the verse before this, it says that the God of this world, referring to Satan, had blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. And then Paul picks up here and says this, for God who said light shine out of darkness is the one who has shunned in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of, of Christ. So at one point, I was blinded, you were blinded, and yet God, through, his, through the power of the gospel, hit my dead heart and he, he brought me alive. Saw my need for a savior, I repented, believed, and put my trust in him. It's a powerful thing that, that, that happens here. And I, and I was reading this passage, it's easy just to go, I was dead in my sin and then I'm alive. Like it's a small thing. No, that's not a small thing. That's, that's a, it's a big thing that has happened. And when you think about how it's happened in your own life, like it's a major encouragement. But over the years, as you see it happening in the lives of other people, does that not encourage you? And as Alice and I have been here just in Jackson for the last couple of years, it's been encouraging to see how people dead in their sin came alive. And if I were to ask you, what's your go-to story? Like when you think about the people who were dead in their sin and they came alive by his grace, what's your go-to story? Like, whose name comes to mind? If I were to be like, man, hey, what story do you always talk about? What story would that be? For Alice and I, it would be Anastasia. 
That's her name. Um, she she's, was in the Navy here in Jacksonville. She um, is somewhere else now. She's overseas, but she was our neighbor when we lived by the town center when we first moved here. Then one Saturday night, as Alice and I were leaving um, our apartment to come here to the missions conference, we accidentally backed up into her truck, to Anastasia's truck, which then leads to a conversation, to a dinner invite. Allison um, has uh, some really good gospel conversations with her. She wasn't a believer. Then we get a chance to invite her to church here on a Sunday morning. And she came on the Sunday where Doug was teaching through teaching through 1 Thessalonians and how uh, the, 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 those in Thessalonica turned from idols to the living God. Do you remember that? And we were sitting right over here with Anastasia and at the very end of the message, Doug said, hey, does anybody want to respond and place their faith in Jesus? And Anastasia stood up. It was powerful to, 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 to watch someone who clearly uh, recognized that they had been blinded, that they needed a savior and she chose, man, I want to put my trust in him. And she did that. And then a little while later was baptized. She got connected with Matt Collins and the worship team. And about a year later on Easter Sunday, she was up here singing on the, on the praise team. That's awesome. Per, seeing a person dead in their sin come alive. All right, before we go any further, there's a very obvious question. If you're in this room, has it happened to you? Are you with confidence, do you know, man, I, there was a time in my life where I was dead in my sin, but I've come alive. I really, if it hasn't, I would hope that this passage would draw you and see your great need for a savior who loves you, who died for you. Uh, if you're not a Christian, this, there is not a better passage to be checking out a Sunday service on. For those of us who have been made alive, man, there is a great response of gratitude. Uh, Paul goes on to say that we've been made alive, but we've also been raised. And when we read this, we have to go raise. Okay, uh, future reality, present reality, has happened, will happen. And I think that we will be raised, certainly. That Yes, we will have eternal life with him in heaven. But I don't think Paul is just talking about a future reality, but a present one, because he says, um, you have been raised. So talking about a past event, uh, this right here, how I have been set free from sin. I was a slave to sin, but he made me alive, put his spirit in me. Galatians 2.20, a verse that we often say around here, that I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live by, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. So I now I've been set free from that. I've been made one with Christ. And as a new believer for me at age 21, living in Titusville, Florida, uh, this became a reality to, to me that I've been made one with Christ, that Christ lives in me, that I'm not defined by what I used to do, uh, that I've been set free from sin. I've been raised with Christ. And I was a delivery driver at this little Italian restaurant. And the, the, it, was a, it was a good job, but there were some challenges because I worked with mostly unbelievers and the things that they would talk about doing um, uh, after work or what they did the night before would often um, kind of tempt me sometimes, tempt me to what I used to do. And I followed the advice of a mentor who basically just said, Jonathan, you're a delivery driver. You got 20 or 30 minutes constantly throughout the night where you're driving around town in your little Honda Civic. Use that time to sing songs to the Lord. And I wasn't much of a singer. I don't sing well now, but over the years, that was the beginning point for me. I'm just learning to love to sing to the Lord, to sing um, 
when temptation comes my way, when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're, all, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. And those moments of a new believer working at that restaurant became moments for me in private, driving around in my car, for me to declare to the Lord, Lord, that's not who I am anymore. That when temptation comes my way, you're my hope and stay. So I've been raised with Christ. He goes on to say, and, I, and I've been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let me read it a second time. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. A little bit harder to understand. I've wrestled with this verse. One leader in senior high told me that uh, this sounds a bit futuristic. And one student, I was reading this with a group of high school students, and they said, oh, this means I have a spot in heaven, which is true. But just like with rays, Paul is speaking of something that has already happened. And we might be confused by the word seated. So let's think here. What does he mean here by seated? And then why does it matter? Because we don't want to just know meaning. We want to know application. And so to understand, I think, what he means by seated, it's good to go outside of Ephesians to Hebrews. And look at what Hebrews talks about, um, about the practices of, of religious um, priests and how it compares or in contrast to the work of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean here. Uh, so seated us with Christ. And then Hebrews says this. Every priest stands, right? So they were standing. Why are they standing? Daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But in contrast, look at what Hebrews says about Jesus. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, and then what does he do next? Yeah, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, so the sacrifice has given up his life, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus here sat down, basically seated, referring to what Christ has done for us. Or as my wife helped me see, Jesus has done the work, it is finished, and I get to benefit from it. I didn't do anything, he did everything for me in my place. That's why at the cross, Jesus yells out at the end of John's gospel, it is finished. And so we don't have to wait on it, the work is finished, I have salvation now. Being seated with Christ, I've become perfect in my position in Christ. Again, not, not seated in the sense of something that will happen, though eternal life, yes, that will happen. But the great benefit for those of us who've been made alive is that we have been seated. My identity is in Christ. That's where I've been placed, totally secure in him. And now that I have been seated, I can never not be seated. Do you see the implications of that? Now that I have been seated, I can never not be seated. I can't lose my salvation. I have total security. I'm sealed. I've become perfect in my position. Think about how Doug started the, the um, Ephesians with blessed vests. This is like blessed vest part two. Ephesians chapter one, verse three says, I've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which makes me think about carfish. By the way, can you still say all, all of the, however many there are, eight? All right, Ryan, is there eight? I'm looking at Ryan because he taught one of them. He at least knows one of them, the one that he taught, all right? But the other one, chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, informed with purpose. I think, what was that? Sealed. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Thanks for helping me out. All of those is true. Now I've been secure in Christ. So a few reasons now 
of, of why, this, why does this matter that I am, I've been made perfect in my position? I want to apply this to maybe two different types of people, to the one who might feel insecure and then the one who might feel defeated in their, in their sins. So first, to the one who feels insecure, I think that this passage, when you feel insecure, uh, this truth of being perfect in position reminds you that your identity is in Christ and not in anything or anyone else. I mean, this is why, this is why I love the book of Ephesians. This is why I came to love it as a new believer. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor at one of the churches that we had attended, but I didn't really pay attention at all during uh, to church services. I would sneak the sports page into the back and I would read the sports page while the guy was giving the sermon. I never really paid attention. So at 21, when I became a believer, I didn't really know the Bible really well. But what someone quickly showed me was that as a new believer, I was very insecure. And so someone told me, you're insecure, you need the book of Ephesians. And I could understand, even, even though I didn't really know anything about the storyline of the Bible, I could understand the layout of Ephesians. And they said to me, the first three chapters are telling you who you are in Christ, and the, chap- and the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are how to live it out. But before you go live it out, Jonathan, you need to know who you are in Christ because you're insecure. And I just dove into those three chapters, read them over and over again, thought about them, tried to sing about them, and just began to go, man, I want to be secure in Christ. And this book, especially the first three chapters, helped me through a lot of insecure times, especially during my last time, uh, or last year at Bible college, when Alice and I had been dating for about a year and a half, man, I was on like, I thought I was on the top of the world. I was gonna graduate from this great Bible college and go change the world. Then I was gonna get married. All my other friends were getting married. And then when I least expected it, um, Alice and I broke up. It was devastating. I remember one of my friends said to me, man, you're a sad puppy. I cried for days. And then, I mean, I didn't know what to do. And so I went to the smartest guy on campus, the president of the school. And I went to his office and I said to him, I told him what happened. And he said to me, well, this is going to be really good for you. And that wasn't helpful, right? (laughs) But then he goes on to tell me, he says, Jonathan, he says, the Lord is going to use this, use this time for you to grow in your unconditional love for, for your, for you to grow in your, his unconditional love for you and his unwavering acceptance of you. And then he beat and drilled into my head this formula. He would say, Jonathan, why do you feel insecure? Because you're believing a lie. Why are you believing a lie? Right, because you feel rejected. And he would constantly remind me, man, you need to go back to the truth of who you are. So eventually, Alice and I did get back together. And this letter built so much confidence in, in me. Let me be more clear. Confidence in the Lord. Uh, I don't have to second guess myself. And so... Um, Several months later, after we had been broken up, it built enough confidence where I was able to go to Allison. We were in South Carolina. I said, hey, Allison, man, I want to pursue you again. I think we're supposed to be together. Why don't you go down to Jacksonville with me and do power-up clubs? At the last minute, man, she came down with me. Spur of the moment, we served as adult leaders at power-up clubs, and then we got married after that, a few months after that. (laughs) And it was, man, it was just, hey, I'm not going to be insecure and be afraid to ask her out a second time, even though we had broken up. So... Huge book for me, especially as you, as you think about insecurities. Uh, second, I think this passage is, or this, I've become perfect in my position in, in Christ is really helpful for the person who feels defeated by sin. You feel like maybe you're in a losing battle with sin. You feel like, man, I can't just keep messing up. And so you hear, I've become perfect in my position. And you're like, but I looked at something earlier I got angry at someone earlier. I snapped. I keep doing what I don't want to do. 
Well, you become perfect in your position, but not yet in practice. This is progressive sanctification. God is at work in you. He is at work, though you may not always feel it and see it. And so, and oftentimes in, in our struggle with sin, it's easy to focus on our sin as opposed to the Savior who died for our sin. And when you struggle with sin and you fall, those moments should produce in you not a worldly sorrow where you just feel bad, but a godly sorrow that leads you to repentance, that, focus, that takes the focus away from yourself and makes you look to the cross. When Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made a end to all my sin. So th this is a, a great um, reminder for if you are struggling with sin, that those moments of failure that leads to repentance should actually become moments that stir in your heart a praise to the Lord. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace that you have shown me. Or you're reminded that you're, that you're not defined by your struggle with sin, but you're defined by the finished work of Christ on your behalf. So we want to become, I think Nicholas Ellen said this in our marriage conference just a while back ago that we wanna become in practice what we've already been made in position. In other words, I wanna live consistently with who I have already become. And when thoughts enter my mind that don't line up with who he's made me to be or who, who he's called me to be, I take them captive and I replace them with truth. So that's what Christ has done. Loved me, made me alive, raised me up, seated me with him in, uh, in Christ. Then I think we have to ask the question, well, why did he do this? Look at verse seven. So that, all right, so why, why is he doing that? So that in the ages to come, <clears throat> he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So why has he done this? Well, we see here both an attribute or a character of who God is. It's because of his grace. From his grace uh, flows love. So now I want to focus on three of the characteristics or attributes of God, his love, his gr uh, mercy, and his grace. So why, did he, why has he um, done what he's done with us? It's because of who he is. And that his love is great, which you mentioned back earlier in the passage. His love is great towards us. Jerry Packer says that God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards individual sinners, whereby having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy, don't miss this, and enjoy him in a covenant relation. God loves us, not generally, personally, personally so that he can draw us into a relationship with him, a relationship where we would enjoy him, where we would be satisfied him, where we would say with the psalmist in Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere that you satisfy all my longings, that you're good even in the midst of sorrow. And as you look at the gospels, you see Jesus loved people personally. Samaritan woman, I'm gonna give you living water. I'm gonna satisfy you. You're going, you have five husbands. You're seeking satisfaction in something that will never satisfy. I love you. I will satisfy you. You see, throughout the gospel, Jesus loves people all the way to the cross, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as I paused in my own journaling time at home and thought about his love is great and the implications of that and my current situation and just different things that I've been thinking through, um, I, I wrote this down in my journal that was, was, was good for me to write down, that he who loved me then loves me now. 
And I've had to repeat that to myself aloud maybe 10 or 15 times last week, that he who loved me then, when? Uh, at the cross, that he who loved me at conversion, that his love is not tied to a past event, but he who loved me then loves me now. His love is not restricted to some past event. He loves me now. And as Paul thinks about God's love, he brings up a good question in Romans 8. Check this out. He says, uh, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And look at the, just take note of the different things he mentions. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced. He's like, man, I am confident. I know that I know that I know. I'm convinced that what? That neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is a passage that makes you sing. Nothing will separate me from his love. That's what's so great about his love. Nothing will separate me from his love. And, and he shows his love because of his great love for us. In verse four, it says this. His love is great and that his mercy is rich. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. Mercy is God's goodness towards those in misery who deserve the wrath of God. I mean, if you're here last week, Doug defined God's wrath by his right, necessary reaction towards evil. So God is rich in mercy. And I've heard it said that there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And sometimes it can be hard to have gratitude for God's mercy until we grasp what we really deserved. Or as Doug said last week, I think he said it this way, light won't shine brightly until we see how dark we really were. And what we deserved, as Romans lays out for us, the wrath of God, that we had made a foolish trade. We traded the truth of God for a lie. We worship created things instead of the, the creator. But God in his mercy sent his son, Jesus. He comes um, for us, not just to die as an act of selflessness, like go be selfless like Jesus was selfless, but Jesus dies as our substitute in our place. The wrath of God, which we deserve, was not poured out on us, but was poured out on his son. And Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That makes me think about one of my favorite songs that I love singing with our daughter Lydia. Um, Man of Sorrows, and it goes on to say, in my place, Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. And because of God's mercy, judgment has been removed and now Romans 8, 1 is true. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And not only is God rich in mercy, but he talks about his grace. He says, um, by grace you have been saved. His grace is surpassingly rich as we see in verse seven. God's grace is mentioned twice in this passage. In this passage, his grace saves us. But then verse seven, I think is speaking about a grace that we will be singing about all through eternity. He will show his grace in the coming ages. Grace is God's undeserved favor. In contrast to mercy, it's when we get what we didn't deserve, we get salvation. And when I think about teaching, before I came here as the youth pastor, I taught the Bible in a public school in North Carolina. And I would assign our students papers to write, like on different passages. 
And oftentimes students would ask for extra time. Like, hey man, I, I just, I'm not finished, I need extra time. And no, one, no student asked for extra time exactly like this. But if someone said to me, hey, Mr. Monk, can I get some grace? What I would say to them was, well, you're not, what you're asking for is not grace. Because grace would not just be extra time, extra time. Grace would be if I wrote the paper for you and gave you an A. And I would do it all. When it comes to salvation, Jesus paid it all. I did nothing. I receive it by his grace. I become alive by his grace. And when you think about songs that speak about God's grace, I mean, there's a lot that come to mind, but doesn't amazing grace come to mind? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And it was cool. Just this past week, I was in my office, and Jesse, the intern, we were hanging out and got a chance to share the gospel with one of our high school students. Long story short, he placed faith in Christ just a few days ago. And it was such a cool moment for Jesse and I. I was like, man, we need to sing. Happen to have a guitar in the office. Jesse grabs the guitar and starts singing Amazing Grace. And as he sang different parts of the song, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Jesse was singing the song and then applied it to this, this, this student. And you just did that. It was like one of the coolest moments I'd ever been in. Like we had our own little worship service where Jesse was applying the truths in the song to this student. So, amazing grace. So God's work, God's character, how do we respond to this? Well, my response to this passage, I think two, two ways. First, I receive him. That if you're dead in your sin and you've yet to come alive, I would plead with you to look away from yourself, to look to what this passage is talking about, how people come alive, and you can trust in him today. You can experience new life. Recognizing that you need a savior, you can't do it yourself, you need to trust in him. And as John 1, 12 says, as many receive him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. And that could be a true of you today by turning from yourself and trusting in him. Now, the second response for most of us in this room is quite, is quite obvious. How do I respond to a passage like this? Well, as I said in the beginning, I think that the response is this. I praise him for what he has done and for who he is. I praise him. This, this passage is leading me to praise him for all that he's done. And in our staff prayer time, we, we gather as a staff to pray on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And it's been a a, a real privilege to be able to pray together with Tony, Doug, Ben, Ryan Scarborough, Tracy, Ryan Toller, Bill, Becky, Carol, John, Tamara, and Matt. And we gather and we pray together. And one of the good things about our prayer time is that Doug has challenged us to praise God before we make a request. So in other words, before we ask God for anything, we stop uh, or we start the prayer time with praising God for who he is which can be challenging at times, but it's really good because it forces you to think on who God is and what he's done, even in the midst of sorrow. And as I think about how this passage has landed on me and my wife and how we have experienced sorrow recently, it, it was just about a few weeks ago and my wife and I went to the doctor and we found out that our three-year-old daughter, Chloe, has um, a genetic disorder that delays children from developing as most children would. And even though we, we already knew that, we might be receiving that news, it, it was still crushing to, to receive that. And then to drive away and to think on that, with that news came lots of questions. I share that briefly just to state the very obvious that I'm not the only one in the room experiencing sorrow uh, this morning. 
Maybe your sorrow is you, you can't have kids or you have lost a baby or maybe you or a family member have recently heard that you have cancer or maybe you're single in this room and you have a deep desire to be married but that hasn't happened. Or I know we have high school students in the room and often the sorrow that they experience sometimes is over broken relationships when relationships don't work out the way you think they would. So we all have experienced some degree of, of sorrow. And the way that my wife and I are trying to process our own sorrow is to receive that hard news through the lens of the gospel, that even in hard news or even in bad news, there is still good news. And what's the good news? That our greatest problem has already been solved at the cross of Christ. That's why Paul, if you think about it in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I am sorrowful. And you know what he says after that? I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And why could Paul say that? Because Paul knew his greatest problem had already been solved. Master worship team to come on up. So as you think about the own sorrow in your life, I think it's good to go back, okay, what is the good news that I've received today? Because there is good news still, that he has loved me, he's made me alive, he's raised me up, he has seated me with him. Why, why has he done those things? Because he loves me. Because he loves me and he has poured out his grace and his mercy towards me. And that mercy and that grace is so good still, even in the midst of pain. And someone told me recently, you, you can still sing even in the midst of pain. Why? Because I recognize the truth that I've heard since I became a believer. And the truth is that many blessings flow from God. Many blessings that I won't just receive in heaven, but I have received them now I am secure in Christ. So I, in this moment, even in the midst of sorrow, I say, praise God from whom all blessings flow.